This is the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. Boundaries or burnout, you make the choice. Here's your host, Michael Levitt. Welcome to another episode of the Breakfast Leadership Podcast. It's Michael Levitt, and today I've got Brandon Bruce. He's the co-founder and COO of Cirrus Insight. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me. Glad to have you. Your backstory is interesting. Um, you grew up in a very tiny town in California with 800 people, and I'm trying to wrap my brain around any town in California that would only have 800 people, but obviously you, you grew up in one. So tell us a little bit about the backstory and how it led you to uh, finding Cirrus and, and all the work that you've been doing on that. Yeah, our, our sign, so it's Los Olivos, California, and our sign growing up said 800 people. Uh, it's a little bit bigger now as a result of the movie Sideways that came out years ago where the two friends go wine tasting, and that's where they went. They went to Los Olivos and hit all the wineries, uh, and that all comes back to where I, where I went to grade school. I had one classmate uh, who, was, who was Blakeney Sanford, and the first winery they go to in the movie Sideways is the Sanford Winery. So it all ties back together to, to the Sanford Winery, which was one of the first wineries in that area. But a real small community and the family school, which is where I went to grade school, was a great place to learn and I think was probably the beginning in some ways of my entrepreneurial journey because the learning was very self-directed. So I remember there was another student uh, that came into school one day and was learning algebra. And I was like, what the heck is that? And he's like, well, I'm learning algebra. So I was like, well, I totally need to learn algebra, right? A little bit of competitiveness kicked in. And so I was like, that's fine. You know, go learn algebra. And that was uh, a perfectly acceptable way to pursue your education. So uh, having that flexibility around, okay, you want to study math? Go study math. You want to go take a nature walk? Since the school was out in the mountains, it was kind of like Little House on the Prairie. Uh, let's go do that, right? Let's figure out what's in the mountains. And uh, yeah, a lot like entrepreneurship, right? Uh, it helped me become a generalist. And, and in some respects, there's difficulty in that, not necessarily a specialist in any one thing, but in a lot of respects to start a company, I think it was a really helpful background. Yeah. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs, um, you know, whether they're really famous or not famous yet, you know, those stories of, you know, where they grew up plays a huge foundation in, in the work that they do and, and their approach on life. And, you know, all the entrepreneurs that I've met, Every one of them has had a backstory that was extremely unique and different than what you typically hear uh, with, with other people. You know, the, you know, a lot of people grew up in a variety of different towns and had experiences similar to everybody, no matter where they grew up. But there's there's always those stories where it's like they started from these really interesting roots and you know took those experiences and made it even better for them in their career. That is interesting because I remember at least uh, you know playing sports and I played most of the sports growing up. Uh, I'm pretty tall. I'm six foot eight. Uh, so naturally I got recruited to play some basketball and volleyball and I played a lot of tennis. My favorite sport was soccer. And then I got into rowing uh, when I was in college and did that for three years. But we were always very competitive. Uh, you know, my dad was big into sports and coached all my teams. And so we always competed really well. But we also knew we came from a really small community. So when we go to travel, right, let's say you traveled from there down to Los Angeles, it was very apparent, like, wow, we're going to a big school district. There's a lot of kids. There's a lot of talent. Like, we got our work cut out for us. But we would always try to compete our best, and sometimes we'd take away a win. And, uh, you know, fast forward, you know, 30 plus years, uh, and we get into this market where our company, Serious Insight, connects 
Salesforce, right? This huge pioneer of the cloud, uh, the biggest CRM company, customer relationship management company out there. And we're connecting that with Gmail. So Google, huge company, and Office 365, Microsoft, mega company. And so we fill this, you know, this niche of moving data between all these platforms. And we're competing it out with a lot of other companies that are pretty big, right? They've raised a lot of money. Um, they're doing well, but uh, we run it from Irvine, California, where my partner is. And then I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is not famous for necessarily being a, a software mecca. But now it's, it's rising, right? There's a lot more tech companies coming out of the Knoxville area, which we're really excited about and excited to have been, you know, kind of part of that early on and in some ways kind of on the ground floor. And so having that little bit of chip on the shoulder, like we know we're coming from a smaller jurisdiction, but we're going to get out and mix it up for, with all the other tech companies uh, in California, my home state, Boston, New York, Atlanta, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, see if we can make a dent. I've observed this. I live in Toronto. I'm originally from Detroit and uh, spent some time in Chicago. So I'm, I'm hitting all the NHL original six cities. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we got, well, I've, I've done work in Boston and New York. I haven't lived there and uh, Montreal. Um, I've not had the opportunity yet because my French is non-existent. So I got to work on that before I can hit that uh, final team. But I, I will say this, and I've observed this even long before you know we had our conversation. Tennessee is really, really, really booming um, in this space, um, in the online space, and all of that. And you know, I've been through Tennessee for years because we, you know, for one, we would you know spend time in it and drive through it, you know, on our way to and from Florida for vacations and whatnot. And I've always been, you know a fan of the state um, and really like to watch their games on Saturdays and college football and, and, and all of the other fun stuff. But I have noticed in the, you know, the last, I would say five or six years, you know, the people that are in the entrepreneur space and the online space, you know, you're seeing all these people crushing it and you, you see, you know, that they're in Tennessee what's yeah. in the water down there and but it is it's really interesting to observe nashville is one of the fastest growing cities in the country a lot of tech companies are locating there obviously uh healthcare is huge hca is based in nashville uh country music and the entire media industry surrounding country music is headquartered in nashville then you've got memphis to the west so you got logistics fedex uh, you got blues music agriculture and then as you go east to Knoxville, so we're the eastern third of the state, um, then you're famous for the team, right? University of Tennessee, Ball Navy, Big Orange, uh, and then you've got the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. On the innovation entrepreneurship side, what a lot of people don't know is that we have Oak Ridge National Lab, which is, which is uh, famous as the secret city. That's where uranium was enriched for World War II. And so we've got one of the highest densities of technical PhDs in the country and the fastest supercomputer in the world. And so that's just up the street from our office. So this amazing talent pool between Oak Ridge National Lab, University of Tennessee, which is a top research institution, you got the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is the biggest uh, producer of public power in the country. Uh, and then just in the last year, we've had three kind of mega deals. So a lot of people have started to call and ask exactly that. What's in the water in Knoxville? Because uh, we had uh, Regal Cinemas, which is based here in Knoxville, uh, merged with a, a group out of Israel and London uh, to create a huge uh, international theater conglomerate. Uh, Discovery Networks merged with Scripps Networks Interactive, which is based here in Knoxville. 
to become a behemoth in a, in a cable leisure media space. Uh, and then Berkshire Hathaway is buying, in the process of buying its second company in Knoxville. So years ago, it acquired Clayton Homes, which is the biggest manufacturer of, uh, of manufactured homes. Uh, and now uh, Berkshire Hathaway is taking, uh, over the next five years, a controlling stake in Pilot Flying J, which is the biggest uh, center of travel centers around the country and the biggest seller of diesel fuel uh, in the United States. So, so pretty amazing uh, to see what's happening here. And those are all great examples of you know uh, startups at one time, startups that started in Pilot's case in the 50s, uh, et cetera, that have grown really big. Those, those were all multi, multi uh, billion dollar deals. So it's exciting to be around that space where you got a lot of people uh, moving and shaking. Yeah, and it's and it's contagious too because it, it it helps you know really you know drive not that you know motivation comes within, but it also you know, you recognize like this is an area of opportunity and it, it gives me the opportunity to be able to say okay I can be bold and go after business and, and find the right people and really, really expand what we're doing and what everybody else in the industry is doing. That's, that, that's I, that I think is the most exciting part. Cause when you, when you look at right, some of the history of Silicon Valley, where so much of it starts with Fairchild semiconductor and creates that ecosystem that then, you know, creates Intel and so on and so on. Uh, more recent example, you have PayPal, which then those founders have gone on to write the first check that funded Facebook. And then of course, Elon Musk has started Tesla and SpaceX where you go down to Austin, it's like Dell Computer and Round Rock and the whole ecosystem that's grown up around Dell. And so now having these, these mega deals happen, these really successful entrepreneurial stories in Knoxville, I think we're right on the cusp of really uh, continuing the growth story that you alluded to, but even uh, building that momentum. Uh, because there is something to that saying, there's something in the water. Like, what does that mean? Uh, it means that it's all around. And so it, it's, it becomes contagious in a really good way. Oh, it makes makes all the sense in the world. So, when you're launching a business, you know, you know, and especially with my audience, there's a lot of solopreneurs and entrepreneurs that, you know, maybe a couple of years into their business and they've been you know bootstrapping themselves and basically you know doing everything uh, in the role. You know, what's your recommendation on when they should hire their first employee and what should they look for? That's a great question because it's one of the biggest judgment calls I think that we face. So uh, Ryan, my co-founder and I uh, started the company, bootstrapped it. So the first nine months, we ran it 100% together. He's the technical architect. I did sales marketing support. And then the, the question was at what point, right? Where, where's, the, where's the tipping point, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, where the revenue is right, where we can afford to make a hire on just the pure dollars and cents front. Uh, but then aside from that, when do we want to make that hour? When are we ready structurally to make a decision on who that right person is? And is that person on the product side? Are they an engineer? Uh, should we try to increase sales by hiring a salesperson? Do we need more go-to-market on the marketing side? Do we hire someone to help with support? Um, and those are our really important judgment calls. The, the way that, that we ended up doing it is uh, nine months in, we thought that we had a strategic investor that was going to come in. Uh, they ended up being acquired, so that froze that deal. Uh, thankfully, some angels came in and said, hey, we, we like the whole plan that you created and your future growth prospects. We want to be involved in this. So we were able to raise a bit of money at that time from angels. And what, what I think that helped us do is not only provide us a little bit more financial backing to, to essentially smooth out cash flow, right? So one month it was high, and we were like, we could definitely hire and the next month would be a little low. And we're like, well, we could still probably hire. It makes us a little more nervous. So at least we had some money in the bank to give us kind of financial permission. Um, and then it also enabled us to say, 
hey, if we have the resources, we're just getting to that point where we've had a personal relationship with every single customer in the door, right? I knew all of them. I talked with all of them on the phone. I had emailed with all of them. I could keep track of them. Well, once we had, you know, crossed over that mark of we've got, you know, a thousand customers. So this is specific to our business. We were software as a service. We had well over a thousand customers at that point. And it's like, now we've got, you know, multiple people named Joe, multiple people named Sally that are customers. And so I was like, it would really be helpful to have more people on the team just to help manage everything. There's a lot happening. We have the potential to do more sales. We need to ramp up marketing. We need some help on the customer support side. And so our first hires were, were those positions, right? Marketing, sales, support. And then after we were able to ramp on the operations side a little bit, we then uh, hired an engineer uh, to join Ryan on his team building out the product. So, th- so that's how we did it um, and how we kind of made that decision. If we hadn't raised from angels, would we have still done hires at around the same time? Uh, I think so, but not as many. We did four kind of simultaneously to start building the team. We probably would have done one or two. Um, and then as we built cash flow, continued to add. And that's kind of how we did it ever since we raised the angel money. As we grew the company, we okay, cool. So we have more cash flow. We'll add more people to the team. Um, but I think, and, and this is a recent observation, so uh, in a lot of ways, kind of brainstorming, but it seems like once you've hit kind of these, these critical numbers, and it's different for different types of businesses, but my observation recently has been among some of the SaaS companies that I've observed, you're getting into that 30K, 25K to 35K revenue mark. That's a great opportunity to look and say, can I bring someone on board that's you know really motivated, that's going to hit it hard with me, right? Almost part of the founding team, that first employee is going to work all the time on everything with the founder or founders. Can I find that person and bring them on board to really give that company that, that second shot in the arm? So that second leg of the relay. So the founder's just been sprinting it out, all out, the whole time, however long it's been. Who's that next person that can not only grab the baton, but not just kind of run with us side by side, but actually help us increase our pace by starting to set some targets a little bit farther out? Um, That, I think, is a great time to start looking at that first hire. That experience years ago with an internet market research firm that was employee number 32 and now, you know, they've got well over a thousand people worldwide. And I remember, um, and this was frustrating for me at the time, now I understand the reasoning behind it, but, you know, they would bring on people to get us to a certain stage and then when they would hit that particular stage, they realized that they needed something different. You know, not those people were great during that time, but they needed something different. So they would right size, uh, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, let some people go and then, you know, take that revenue and, and hire some people that could help them with, you know, the next stage and all of that. And, I, and I'm guessing that many entrepreneurs, when they build people up or hire people, you know, they're sometimes the mentality is like, okay, we're hiring them and they're going to be working for us for the next 25 years. So they're going to get the gold watch and all of that stuff, which is not reality anymore. So it'd be curious to see, you know, you know, some of the challenges that you guys faced when you were, um, you know, bringing on those, you know, those people and, you know, making those tough calls if you had to make some adjustments uh, within your organization. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one of the, the self-inflicted challenges that we've had, which I wouldn't necessarily do differently, uh, but nevertheless has been a challenge, is 
Ryan and I talked originally when we started looking at the possibility of hiring and said, well, what are, what are the attributes and characteristics of folks that we would like to work with and who do we think would be the best at helping us to take the company to the next level? Uh, who can fill in gaps? What do we not do well or what do we need help with that we want to focus on other things? And one of the things, and, 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 and Ryan first brought this up and it just made sense to us was, let's find other people who are founders or who have been founders or who want to be founders in the future. That was the, that was the big one. It was, let's find people who want to be founders in the future. They want to join us, uh, make mistakes with us so that they know when they start not to do those things, have successes with us so they can say, this is part of my playbook going forward now. Um, let's go find those people because they're going to bring that, that founders, that owner's mentality, right? All of our employees of stock options and so forth. So that that's technically true. Also, let's bring those folks on board uh, early and often. Let's continue to look for those folks as we grow the company because they're going to come in and really bring that energy because they want to know how the entire business works. They want to have good relationships with customers uh, and they want to be able to say, I came to the company when it was X and I was able to take it to two X to three X to five X, et cetera. And that's part of their story. And they're going to leverage that experience to then do their thing when they're ready. Um, the challenge then that that naturally led to is a number of those people did exactly that. Uh, they joined us, worked with us for three to five years. And it was like, hey, so I've got this idea or I, I, I'm, I'm going to go start my own company now. And we were like, oh, like we totally want you to stay. Look at how well we're doing uh, together. We want to keep doing this with you. But at the same time, we also knew, yeah, of course, because a lot of these things that we saw are the things that are now motivating you to go out uh, and do the next company yourself. And so one of the great positive outcomes, I think, not only uh, uh, do I think we've created a lot of great opportunities for people that have joined our company to grow tremendously, right? Uh, grow in leadership, get certifications, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, on our team that are on our team today, but we've also been able to, to spin out uh, several companies that are successful today. Uh, software companies, agricultural companies, marketing companies have come out of folks that spent years with us and then said, I'm ready to go do it now. And thanks for all this great learning experience. Um, you know, we've been able to grow the company from X to three X and now I'm going to go do it myself, um, which has been really cool, but it's been a challenge for us because those folks obviously are so talented that they leave a void. So then it's incumbent to have, a good uh, bench of folks that are ready to assume leadership roles that are inside the company and then simultaneously be able to go out and recruit um, more talent to continue to join us and, 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 and build, the, uh, build the entire talent pool uh, within the company. So that's one of the things that we look for. Um, not necessarily a, a recipe for success one way or the other. It might apply uh, uniquely uh, to our company or companies in our industry, but I, but I would recommend it because I think those are really fun people to work with. And one of the best things about being an entrepreneur, if you decide to build a team is that you get to choose who you work with. Uh, that's one of the coolest things, right? If you're joining a company, you don't get to choose. They've chosen who's working there and they're going to choose who they hire after you. Uh, and that's great. And you can all work well together. But as an entrepreneur, you have the, the power, the responsibility and the risk of getting to choose exactly who you get to work with every day. Uh, who do you want to see and spend a lot of hours with trying to crack hard questions? And we, in large part, have chosen other people where we see the spark of, hey, these are people that can run their own companies, that can continue to grow in leadership and take our company to the next level. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure to work with folks like that. 
I forget who coined this phrase, but I've you know used it for years and have had many of discussion with various bosses over the years about training people so well that they leave. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Risky. And, and they're like, well, you're training all these people and all the good people are leaving. And, and of course, the, the response to that is, well, what if we don't train them to be good and they stay? Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's, that's a great rejoinder. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, here, here's the deal. And I want them, I want them to vie for my job. And if they're better than me, then from an organizational standpoint, make that move. I, I'm, I'm, I'm one to, you know, step aside and say, yeah, if they're a better leader than me, then they can have it by all means, because I know it's going to benefit the organization. You know, right. kind of piggybacking on those comments. So, when you're training all of these all-stars and all of a sudden, you know, these all-stars start going to other teams or launching their own organizations, how do you pivot from that? Because you, know, you could lose some really key individuals. How, how have you guys pivoted around, you know, negotiating, you know, those stormy waters per se to, okay, what do we, what do we do here? You know, how, how are we going to fix this while, you know, this person is no longer here? What are we going to do short-term and long-term? Yeah, I mean, I, I would be uh, absolutely off base if I didn't say it's a huge challenge. And usually for us, it has entailed uh, one or both of uh, Ryan and I jumping back in more intentionally to that part of the business and getting really active in it again. So we've probably stayed connected to that part of the business, certainly uh, as founders, but we were really relying on that person to run it operationally and take it to the next level. And so then if that person departs, then we usually get far more involved for a time as we make sure that we have the right people already in the company to then take on responsibility. Maybe it's one person, maybe we divvy it up among several people, um, or maybe we need to go out and recruit and find a person to come in and then get them up to speed. But in every case, that's been a multi-month process. Um, I don't think there's an easy way around it, especially for a small company. Um, as we've done it a few times, I think we've gotten better, which isn't to say it's eliminated the challenge, but mitigated it a bit to be thinking ahead where it's like, okay, uh, you know, if I get hit by a bus, right? The classic, if someone gets hit by a bus situation, then what happens? We started running those scenarios a little bit more. So it's like, okay, the team lead here, uh, if they got hit by a bus, quote unquote, then what would happen? Who would be the next heir apparent? Who are we training up to make sure who, who has all the logins, who has the ability to run this aspect of what they do and that aspect. And so we, we've gotten better over seven years of doing more, you know, if then else succession planning. Um, but even doing that uh, still, and we're coming with 54 people, it, it's still a big thing, right? When you have a manager or a leader leave, you've still got to jump into that area uh, to, fill, to fill the void. Yeah, and it's good to keep your hands on it, at least awareness of what's going on in the organization, because I think, Again, no matter, unless it gets gigantic, then you have people and people to keep tabs of it. But I find the organizations that continue to do really well um, will, you know, still have their, their ownership group and, and founders still having a pulse of what's going on with the organization and, and having input on things. You, you, obviously, you want your all-stars to you know, run things as best as they can, you know, with your guidance and tutelage, but you also want to, you know, kind of take a peek and go, okay, what's going on? It also gives you the opportunity to, you know, you know, being in the leadership role to be visionaries and see, okay, what, what are we seeing? You know, what are some opportunities, you know, and 
you know, I'd be curious to see, you know, with a team of this size and, you know, over the seven years, you know, what type of processes have you, you know, involved in your organization to help, you know, automate certain things? I know you can't automate everything, is, although entrepreneurs and solopreneurs certainly try to. Um, it doesn't happen off the time, but I'd be curious to see what kind of processes you guys use to, you know, to be able to work with, you know, the, the big guys like you had mentioned, you know, the Googles and the Microsofts of the world. Yeah, I mean, to, to, to your point, I'm a big believer and I always have been, I think in part because, uh, and I especially remember my mom doing this and then and my dad too, it, it, they made checklists, right? And so it became from an early age, it's like, well, if you want to get something done, you put on a list and then when you do it, you check it off the list. Um, and I, you know, the famous book that was written in the last few years by Atul Gawande, who writes for the New Yorker, is called The Checklist Manifesto, right? And he talks about how to avoid... Uh, lots of mistakes in the healthcare industry, but you know, follow, follow the checklist. Like, let's make sure we follow this and wash our hands and do the basics every time. Um, and so, what we've one thing that has helped has been to create as many of those kind of operational checklists as you can. Which is to say, you can't. Uh, uh, I would say checklist everything. Right? There's still a huge need for uh, human intervention when it comes to just the, the creativity, the spark that says, Hey, wait a second. What about this? So you, you know, not everything is we're going to go to market following these 10 steps. You constantly have to tweak and adapt to market conditions. But by operationalizing a lot of that, you do mitigate against, Hey, if somebody leaves, how did they do the core things that their job entails? Oh, well, we have these 20 checklists that define the 20 most important tasks that they did every morning just to get the machine started let's make sure we do those. And because we've gone through the process of making that, that flow chart, that checklist, um, then there's visibility. We can share it with anybody in the company. We share it with everybody. Um, and so it's helpful to kind of democratize those processes so that if one person leaves, and, and I would extend the argument to if one person gets sick, if one person needs to take leave, if one person accrues a lot of vacation and, and, and decides to go take a vacation for two or three weeks, then what do we do? What if they're unreachable? Well, having those lists at least enables us to do all the basics and do them right. Um, you know, we still won't be able to take advantage of the fact that they bring, you know, their own personality and creativity and leadership and problem-solving skills to the job, uh, which obviously are the most important things. Um, but by having those lists, we don't find ourselves behind the eight ball where it's like, hey, does anyone have the login to such and such? Or how do we you know, do this when we do a release, what's the checklist we go through to do the product release and then the marketing announcement and then the sales team gets it out and the success team tells existing customers, what's that process again? Oh yeah, it's in the checklist. We'll just follow the checklist. So that's been a helpful exercise for us. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the checklists and, um, and standard operating procedures in case, you know, we, we do fall victim to a bus or right. <laughs> win the Powerball or something like that. And like, That's true. That's been the most interesting one over the last few weeks, right? Everyone's talking about, hey, if we hit the Mega Millions, then have a yeah. succession plan ready. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, you might want to draft that up because, <laughs> you know, as much as I love you guys, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm going right. to be spending all my time meeting with my tax attorney and everybody else and and you know hopefully able to keep about at least five dollars of the lottery winnings after everything is right once it gets split a hundred ways hopefully you have some left yeah something to at least be able to buy a meal at denny's or something you know it's like whatever the case may be so I, I, one last question and again i appreciate you know you spending time with me today on this is 
one of the things that you mentioned before, you need, you've worked with, you know, Google and Microsoft and all this stuff. And, you know, there's, and you said it at the outset, you know, that there's other organizations that are doing similar work to you that are obviously much larger players in the, in the spectrum. So how do you, you know, and this is something that all entrepreneurs face, how do you compete against those really big, well-funded organizations that are in the same space that you are? I mean, I, I think certainly it, it, there's an aspect to it, and, and we're very much a, a, a sales-first uh, type organization, which means that when we launched, Ryan had already started building a great product, but very early on, we got about a thousand users into the pilot period to get their feedback so that we could craft a product that they wanted. Um, and I think that was vital and it's kind of part of our company DNA, which is let's not go into the tank and come up with something that we think is cool and then surprise the market with it. Uh, sure, we're going to have some pretty good ideas, but so far uh, over seven years, the customer has had the best ideas. So let's ask them early and often. And that then loops back to help answer your question, which is, uh, I think whether it's an individual relationship or a company relationship with another company, the ones that have the, the closest relationship, right? Where there's the most history, the most trust, the most reliance uh, is going to keep that customer, whether you're the big company serving that customer or the small company. Now you've got to have the right stuff to back it up. So we've all had situations where it's like, oh, but you're a great friend of mine. Aren't we going to do business together? And it's like, I would love to, but I need to use this other product because it suits my needs better. So you've still got to have the right stuff. You've got to have the right product. You have to deliver it in the right way. It's got to be a reasonable price. But assuming all those things, assuming a relatively level playing field, then I think it's the relationship that matters the most. And so uh, I think we've had success in that department because we've done overall a strong job at you know, building, curating, uh, and maintaining those relationships over time. Hey, we're going to keep delivering a quality product to you at a fair price, but we're also going to be here. If you have a support question, we're going to answer it immediately through our online chat, or we're going to get it to the right technical support person in the ticket system. And you're going to have a signed customer success rep that knows you, that knows your business, and that will come and visit you if you want them to. And we have a sales team that's ready to do a demo at any time right? We have strong overseas markets. So our sales team, if you want to do a demo at two in the morning Eastern time, but you're in one of the markets that we've had a lot of success in and you ask for the demo, but we've got a bunch of salespeople that will raise their hand and say, I want that demo because they know it has a high rate of closing. And so the fact that we've stayed very open, that if you want to book time with us, we're there and we'll spend time with you, uh, I think has been a differentiator from, from day one and continues to be today. Now, I think the product that Ryan and our engineering team has built is obviously at the core, uh, you know, post sale, you know, during the demo post sale throughout the life of the history of the customer, uh, the product has to perform. We've got to provide world-class integration between Gmail and Outlook and Salesforce. And then, but as long as we continue to do that, how do we, you know, fend off other existing or potential future competitors? We just maintain those really excellent customer relationships. A good friend of mine likes to say, you know, marketing is storytelling, but sales is serving. And it sounds like your entire team serves like its customers really, really goal. well. Yep. That's the goal. And you, and you do that, everything will take care of itself because a lot of the large, you know, corporations and nothing against them because I know they, they do great work and they employ a lot of people and they, they make a huge contribution to society. But again, just by the nature of, of how those organizations are structured, they can't spend and get to know the customers 
uh, the way that your organization can. So that makes a huge, huge difference. Uh, and yeah, I think those of us that run small companies, right? Uh, one person companies, two person, we scale it up to have a few dozen people. We always have to be on the lookout. What are our advantages? And when you're small, it's the ability to pivot fast, be nimble, release features faster if you're a software company or a professional services company, be the first on the phone. So the, the customer has a question or a problem or whatever, you know, we're, we're Johnny on the spot and we can get there. And I think, you know, while, while we're small, that's absolutely, and hopefully maintain that, right. As you continue to grow and some of the biggest companies are the best because they've kept that in their culture and they're still the fastest, which I think is remarkable. Um, it's just great operations on their part to be able to do that. But while, while we're small, we certainly want that to continue to be a differentiator. So people say, well, given the choice, even if it were a toss up, we'd still like to do business with them because we know we can reach them. We know they're there. We know they've got our back. It makes a big difference for, for everybody involved. That's for sure. So Brandon, where can people find out more about you and your business and you know, the awesome stuff that your organization's doing? Yeah, for sure. So we're, so we're Cirrus Insight, Cirrus like the high wispy cloud, C-I-R-R-U-S and then insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T dot com. Uh, my email is Brandon at SiriusInsight.com. Certainly, I'm in uh, LinkedIn. Brandon Bruce, feel free to shoot me a message there. And uh, if anyone ever finds themselves over in East Tennessee in the Knoxville area, then swing by on a Friday and uh, join us for a company lunch. That's awesome. And audience, I'll definitely have all that information in the show notes. And uh, just give Brandon an update. I don't want a thousand people showing up at a luncheon because I know some of you. <laughs> right. Give us a heads up and we'll that. make sure to order plenty of food. <laughs> That's exactly. Otherwise, it's like, it's like, what's that line out the door? Are we selling right. concert tickets to somebody? What in the world's going on? It's like, you know. Oh, awesome. Brandon, I, problem to have. <laughs> it would be, it would be just charge a mission, you know, and then everything's good to go. Brandon, thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate you and all the awesome work that you guys are doing in, in Tennessee and, you know, keep up the great work and um, reach out to me anytime you need anything from me. So again, thank you so much. Likewise. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. And everybody until next time, be well. Hey, it's Michael again. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you're like many people, you're dealing with some significant stress and possibly approaching burnout. I know how you feel. In 2009, my burnout led to a year of worst-case scenarios. I do not want that to happen to you. If you go to breakfastleadership.com, you can register for a free webinar on burnout prevention, as well as get a free checklist to have successful mornings. Start off each day the right way. Again, that's at breakfastleadership.com. Also, since you are a loyal podcast listener, I'm asking you to like, rate, and review my podcast on iTunes. I look at all the reviews and appreciate your comments, and it helps other potential listeners discover the content I have on the show. I appreciate you, and thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.